0: This is R. J. Rushdoony, easy chair number 359, April the 3rd, 1996. This evening, first of all, Douglas Murray, Paul Biddle, Mark Rushdoony, and I will discuss the limits of civil government. Uh, incidentally, Andrew Sandlin is in England speaking at present and so is not with us tonight. The limits of civil government is an important subject because we are facing increasingly, increasingly a world in which no one is ready to say there are any limits on civil government. Its power has increased exponentially just since World War II, although you could put that increase in power back to the days of Woodrow Wilson and Franklin Delano Roosevelt. It's hard to realize that earlier in the century, just before World War I, Washington, D.C. was barely a city. Except when Congress was in session, there were not many people there. It was a sleepy, quiet, southern community. The Taft family would stake the family cow out on the lawn or front area. It was just grass in those days of the White House. So there were no lofty driveways and entries to the White House. Washington itself, except when Congress was in session, did not have a great population. I used to know some years ago a man who grew up in those days. He was born in the last century and was a mature man when he left Washington, D.C. And he said in his childhood and youth, you knew most of the people in the city. Well, Washington, D.C. has grown. So has every other civil government. Now, what are the limits on civil government? We're used to thinking of The Middle Ages is a time when the state had great power because kings and emperors ruled. Actually, they did not have um, much power. In fact, uh, as J. R Lander in his book The Limitations of English Monarchy in the Later Middle Ages, has written, and I quote, The civil bureaucratic establishment of late medieval England was very small indeed, at the most not more than one civil servant for every 1,050 of the population. Moreover, their functions were by no means exactly comparable, comparable as about two-fifths of these were employed in the law courts, so that we can plausibly say that it was one for every 2,070 of the population. To investigate the actual distribution of these civil servants, their total number nominally at the direct command of the king can hardly have exceeded 1,500 men perhaps 250 to 300 knights, esquires, yeomen, and pages, in the politically significant section of the royal household, hold perhaps 100 in the exchequer, 150 in the chancery, about the same in the law courts, and about 30 or 40 receivers and auditors staffing the New Yorkist system of estate management and financial control, centered in the king's chamber, 80 or 90 customs officials, and about 700 or 800 local keepers of royal parks, castles and forests, and stewards of royal manors. Each county had its sheriff's office and its staff in a large county like Lincolnshire could number up to 100 these appointments, however, were in the control of the sheriff, not the king. And whatever had been the case earlier, by the mid-14th century, the sheriff's offices had become notorious centers of corruption. End of quote. However, as he goes on to make clear, the corruption was not on the grand scale that it is now. The bureaucracy was limited And although you could say it was the will of the king that prevailed, there were many checks on the will of the king, the power of the local lords and a great deal more. In other words, there were more limitations on English kings in the late Middle Ages than there are on many of our prominent American public officials. So bureaucracy has grown. Democracy has not been a prevention of corruption or a prevention of the growth of bureaucracy. In fact, both have proliferated under democracy. Now, this is not to say that it is an evil fact to have popular suffrage, but simply But the basic problem is the lack of character in the people, which has led to corruption on all levels. The old saying, you cannot make a good omelet with rotten eggs, applies to every area of life. You cannot do it in the state, nor can you do it in the church. You cannot do it in education on any level. If you have bad eggs, you're going to have a bad omelette. And in our day, the bad omelette surfaces on every level of civil government as well as society at large. Well, with that general introduction, Douglas, would you like to take over? I know you have a great deal of experience here.
1: Well, the thing that people in government uh, don't seem to realize yet, or at least in our current federal government, is that government also, while it has many powers, it also has the power to destroy itself uh, by overstepping its limits. And uh, as we have observed previously, uh, historically, governments that, go beyond fifty percent taxation are generally changed uh, either by force mostly historically have been changed by force or uh, uh, the governments have uh, fallen and a new government has risen to take its place Uh, it would be preferable to have a bloodless revolution but uh, too often in history when the pressure builds up it becomes a bloody re- revolution because the people uh, they're actually driven mad. There's people in this country are being driven mad uh, by uh, the continuing ratcheting of the pressure at all levels through regulation, um, pressure on the uh, property rights, uh, pressure through taxation, etc. The, the limit is is really uh on government is the limit of the tolerance of the people uh to the um, the predatory uh actions of government. And also they're limited by the resources that are available to tax. Uh historically uh, property has been <coughs> the primary target of taxation because it's the tangible uh, thing that can be counted most easily. It's, it's the one thing you can't hide is physical property, real property. Uh, however, our government has, uh, stepped it up to, uh, a tax income, to tax profit, to redefine, uh, what you can keep by defining certain profits as excess profits in other words you're you're not allowed to uh, to make beyond a certain point otherwise the government considers that you don't keep any percentage of an excess profit they take it all instead of taking a percentage up to a certain level as they do in a graduated income tax beyond a certain point for corporation particularly oil companies back in the I believe in the 1970s, uh, they defined uh, uh, excess profits as being government property and they confiscated uh, those profits. Then it becomes taxing tools of production so that the means with which you make your living, uh, the actual tools that you use to make your living are taxed. Now we're seeing a new Break. Now I know it's been done in other countries, but we're seeing it here, I think, for the first time, and now that leisure time activities, there is proposal now to tax television. I mean, this is the last refuge of poor people, is to stay at home and watch television. And so, it indicates to me that we're getting to the end of the cycle of resources that is available for the government to to tax when they get down to taxing leisure activities of the poor. And uh, we're getting, I believe, very close to a change in government Uh, because when they go that far uh, they're going to get over the 50% point and at that point people are just going to pull the plug on it. They'll either refuse to pay, states will refuse to to uh, uh, send uh, tax money in uh, and uh, the government will just uh, you know either have to take it by force at that point in which case they'll have, a, they'll have blood in the streets. The something I've never seen in my lifetime is auctioning of radio frequencies now in all prior laws the the Geneva Convention, 1934 communications convention the basis on which all countries regulated the use of the airwaves was in the public interest, convenience and necessity didn't say anything about corporate profit, didn't say anything about the government's making a profit, but auctioning something that basically belongs to the people, it's a public resource, uh, selling them, in effect, through auction to corporate entities so that they now own radio frequencies, so that the government is now relinquishing, in effect, relinquishing control over the people's airwaves and selling them to corporations. So they're getting down to the nitty-gritty of what they can sell in order to finance the welfare state. So I believe these are definite indications that we're getting to the end of this cycle of government that it is no longer going to be able to sustain itself economically and will collapse because there's nothing else left to tax.
2: The government in the same vein, as far as self-limits on the power of the government, a government that likes to tax likes to spend even more. And so they're all inevitably not only going to tax the people high, because theoretically a government that ta- taxes, uh, if they spend only what they receive, they can maintain that for a long time. And they can claim that, look at what we're giving you. Well, but, but, but they like to go into debt. And they like to inflate, which means they're destroying the economy as they tax and spend.
1: I don't think there's anyone in this country that stays aware of current events that is has any uh, expectations that our government will ever cut spending. It's simply a political impossibility. Because once people figure out that they can vote themselves benefits from the public treasury, there's no stopping it. Absolutely no stopping it because it runs counter to human nature. Everybody wants something for free. And, you know, the vast majority of people in this country will continue to take money from the public purse. The public purse will never be full enough. It will never have enough money until they tax it all, at which point people will figure out there's nothing else left for them.
0: Paul?
3: Well, I was trying to think of some countries that I have visited and efforts of the United States that have been undertaken to think about what these limitations are. And I think there are two types of limitations that we speak of. One are limitations that are, and then there are limitations that we might think should be in place. Mm-hmm. And uh, I won't go too far into what, should be, because that can take quite a bit of time, but the limitations that I think are inherent in governments or civil uh, institutions are, one, their ability to know what is going on within their entity, and two, their ability to enforce their wills within that entity. And so if, if you don't know that your, your organization, your state organization is doing something you cannot keep it on track, you cannot affect its direction or the outcome of events Uh, but if you don't have the means to go out and enforce it, you don't have a police force you don't have a taxing authority, what have you, you can't do much to enforce the will of the state and I I look at uh, several things that come under the ability to enforce And I I think when we see these things, uh, when I was in Vietnam, and I was uh, involved in the type of work I was doing there uh, I saw these four tools that states use. One, one is they control communication. Uh, Doug is talking about you know selling off frequencies. Well, if you control the ability of people to articulate, you have defined a status that you can either continue or you can modify. But it mm-hmm. provides you knowledge and it provides you the ability to contain. And if you notice, in most foreign countries, most foreign countries you cannot have an English language radio station or television station. A great example was Japan up until 1980 or so. Uh, The only English language broadcast that was permitted in that country was by uh, the armed forces networks down in Iwakuni and areas like that in Sasebo. You go into the Philippines, and the Philippines are very much Americanized, but you had limited television programming in English there also. Uh, But communication is one instrument that the government uses and they control people with the communication lines. Another one is the popular interpretation of history and heritage. Uh, In Malaysia, I I recall when I was working in Kuala Lumpur, I read these textbooks that the Malays were using in their schools. And it, it really put down people of Western European heritage. Uh, Of course, now, that's not a Christian country. But there was tremendous uh, disgust with the colonial efforts that occurred in, at that time, Malaya. And it it was inferred or placed upon all Western Europeans, not just English. Another way that the government uses to control people and direct them, uh, this ability to enforce their wills, is through duress. And that can come through either the police function which we can think of as uh, uh, the people with white shirts and and black trousers and and batons. But a police effort also comes from other things, causing people to be sure that they uh, have so much space in front of their house. Zoning ordinances, these are all police activities because there's enforcement associated with them if you violate them. And another area that's immense in terms of the state having... Uh, what limits them is when these things start failing if taxing capacity starts failing if you're not able able to enforce taxation and we see the development of a a tier of commercial activity in our country where it's not being taxed it has slipped beyond the reach of the taxing authorities so I think that's an inherent limitation to civil government and uh, another one is the financial reach of the state when it reaches out and fails to control, such as in the stock markets, uh, in the banking institutions, savings and loans, uh, even in our our trade agreements. In GATT, where we, in effect, have lost much of our self-control of our financial destiny. In NAFTA, when we start seeing things like this, where a state cannot control, it begins to say that the state is limiting its authority, so to speak because of their actions. And I guess the last one is, uh, a state's or civil authority is limited by its quality. If you see leadership that you think is bankrupt morally, you start seeing a civil entity that starts to contract. People lose respect for it, it loses its authority. So I would say the two big things are, first, the state has to know what's going on within its its borders. Uh, Secondly, it has to have the ability to enforce both inside and outside. Uh, Mm -hmm. We think of the Monroe Doctrine, we get carried off into things like Bosnia, but this ability to enforce its will is really important, and if you can't do that, you start having these natural limitations. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's important to remember that
2: you can assign at most any task to government, but you have to remember that government is never efficient at anything it does the most necessary functions are not going to be done particularly efficiently or certainly not cost-effectively because government never has to think in terms of doing anything efficiently. Um, A large corporation, say fast food, they'll know right down to the penny how much their french fries cost to produce Uh, per serving, for their different size servings, how much the little cardboard box or paper wrapper costs. They know everything, and they, because if they're losing money, they're losing it millions of times every day in any one item. And they have to constantly focus on doing things efficiently. Government doesn't have to do that. A government just says, we're getting the job done. That's what you want out of your government, isn't it? They don't have to be efficient. So the bigger a government gets, the more inefficient it's going to be because then it needs more power, more spending to accomplish any given factor. So government can do just about anything people expect of it, but none of it's going to be efficient. Even something as necessary as military defense, it's never been efficient. That's why the liberals can always criticize it because they, could, they will always be able to find tremendous amounts of waste in anything that that's large, that that large that government does, but people expect a defense, and so there's going to be some inefficiency in it. I think the two essentials of what we that we have to look at is well, the two essentials. Of what government is for is justice and defense. The government has to be a source of uh, justice, uh, source of, uh, in other words, courts making sure that uh, I have some recourse other than some personal vendetta or vengeance that uh, there's some administration of justice that I can have recourse to and defense would include police as well as military. We have to have some um, designated authority to enforce the laws. Um, but if you keep in mind that nothing they're going to do is going to be particularly efficient and the larger our government gets, the less our freedoms are available to us, then there's no real advantage to a large government if it doesn't serve those functions of justice and defense.
3: Can, can I ask a question, Rish, because I'm hearing things here. and I'm, I'm thinking how far does a government have to fail before its inertia or its natural aspects cause it to be limited. I, I'm thinking like one of the things I had was duress, and I'm looking at civil governments. We're hearing now about Riverside, where there are uh, two deputies beat uh, some illegal immigrants. I believe that was the case. Uh, we have the Rodney uh, King incident in Los Angeles. Uh, where I, I think once you start losing confidence because of the affecting of duress, or well, once you have a financial debacle, I was very surprised in the United States when the savings and loan uh, and the banking industry and HUD, these are tremendous financial enterprises in our country, started to go south and people still believed in the system and still supported the government that had occasioned these things to occur. How far does a government have to slip, do you think, before its naturalness causes it to be limited and to fail?
0: I don't think that's a question that can be answered. For example, uh, Gladstone, one of the great English political figures of last century, at one time called attention to the incredible corruption of the kingdom of the two Sicilies. Now, for generations... That realm had an amazing record of corruption, almost unbelievable, but it survived. It was only when Garibaldi created a united Italy and overthrew that regime that it ended. The people were ready to take whatever was dished out because they didn't have the faith to resist, just as the mafia has... For generations, ruled Sicily, in effect, and the people know it's death to resist. So states can be exceedingly corrupt. As long as they maintain the power to kill off any critics, they survive. This makes it very, very dangerous for a state to get too powerful because then it can step in and do as it pleases with the people. So if the people are without faith, and if they have allowed the central power to get too powerful, they become virtually impotent. This has happened again and again. At this point, war has been a help at times in overthrowing corrupt regimes. Regimes that have been for generation upon generation corrupt. No one able to challenge the power. And then a war overthrows the regime. So wars, ugly as they are, have at times served a beneficial purpose in ending Uh, ugly regimes. At other times, regimes within a regime have survived for a long, long time. For example, a history of, let's say, just Western European warfare is, if accurately written, a thoroughly horrifying story because generals were named for, uh, well, their services to the king, providing him with a mistress or being uh, highly regarded by the queen. They would have no military knowledge. They would send people to their death wholesale. But no attention was called to that until the modern media arose, which, bad as it is, has called attention to a great many things, and public opinion was formed. That happened in England uh, with the Crimean War. Things like the Charge of the Light Brigade, one of many, many instances, the most dramatic, of total incompetence on the part of those in command. That incident horrified the English public. It led to reforms. It meant that no longer were these incompetent boobs, who were very good at dressing but didn't have an iota of knowledge as to what military strategy should be. Only with public opinion was a stop put to that type of appointment. The caliber of military command since the Crimean War has steadily improved so that while there are people who are highly critical of the top brass, for example, in our armed forces, uh, they don't know how bad it once was, especially overseas. It was better here than most places. Well, there are a number of things that lead to uh, overthrowing a bad regime or a bad part of a regime. Public opinion through the media is one of them. And that has been an important fact. Moreover, the... Uh, well, we'll continue... Well, to continue, one of the problems we face today is that because of the sheer size of civil government on every level. There is too much there for the ordinary man to monitor, or even experts, or the media. It is commonly said that the most corrupt uh, branch of the federal government is the Indian service. Well, If that is true, and it's certainly among the worst, there's an obvious reason for it. It does not get much attention. How often in the course of a year do you read about the Indian service? It's out of sight and out of mind. As a result, those within the Indian service can do just about as they please. And Because there are so many, many branches comparable to the Indian service, hundreds upon hundreds of agencies commanding a total of billions of dollars, but actually unknown to the average American, it is easy for these agencies to survive, to be radically corrupt, and to be beyond the reach of any reform. A few years ago, in the 80s, this one uh, prominent writer had a list of uh, a great number of agencies in Washington, and the entire book was about them and how much they were spending, all of which were useless all these agencies could be dispensed with. But nothing was done. They were too many for the people to get indignant about. And as a result, they survived endlessly. I know that uh, until not too many years ago, when it became a kind of joke and then was uh, abolished, the... Navy was still buying rope uh, made for the old-fashioned sailing vessels of the Navy. Nobody had put a stop to it. And there were segments of the economy living off of that, having a sure income year after year. And finally, a few people wrote enough about it, made fun of it, so that it was finally dropped or at least uh, someone who at that time worked in the Navy who has since retired told me it was going to be dropped now it's possible that after being dropped for a year it was put back into the budget because who reads the budget? it's a few thousand pages nobody has ever read it all Everybody puts in what they want and it goes through with a vote by congressmen and senators who've never read it. And there can be things in there that are beyond our imagination and which nobody has the time to research and to expose. So the very bigness of of the federal government or any civil government makes it difficult to reform it, plus the moral weakness of the people. They are out to get what they can and therefore there is no righteous indignation in them about what is happening in Washington or the state capital or the county seat or the city offices.
1: Talking about anachronisms of government. In the 1950s I was in the army and uh, I was uh, stationed at Fort Riley, Kansas and uh, I was just a uh, dog face at the time going through basic training and uh, I was detailed to shovel horse manure in uh, horse barns of a horse-mounted cavalry detachment <laughs> in the 1950s. <laughs> and they these horses got the best of everything. I mean, they had the saddles and, you know, everything, and uh, they trotted them out once a year for a parade or something like that. But here's the taxpayers supporting the horse-mounted cavalry detachment, just in case.
0: <laughs> in the case there was another battle of... Uh that's right. A little big horn or whatever.
1: Well, the reason it was there, it was uh, it was uh, a holdover from when uh, uh, who was the general uh, tank commander in World War II Patton. Mm-hmm. And Patton had commanded that thing, and it was his pet project. So nobody was going to fool with it. Even though when Patton died in the 1940s or something like that, they weren't going to. They weren't going to fool with it because that was his pet project.
0: That was his background, the cavalry. Yeah. He was a cavalry soldier.
1: You know, they just
3: <clears throat> changed the motorized horses. So this past summer, my son Carl and I, we visited Fort Riley. Mm-hmm. I think we visited those stalls. They still have a few horses, but I don't mm-hmm. know if they have any cavalry left in the United States Army. But uh, you know, I, I was, I so. yeah yeah. I was thinking about three countries civil instituted authority that have failed and I was just applying my little measure against it and the three I was thinking of were one, Iran under the Shah, I was thinking of Cuba actually there were four, Cuba under Batista Romania Ceausescu, and the Serb efforts recently Mm -hmm. in the Bosnia area. And if we take the two measures that I I think are the that show the inherent limitations that God's built into the system, why these things fail. I think that in all of those states there was effort made to know about what the people were doing. They had secret police. In Iran you had the Savat uh, Batista I don't know what his intelligence organization and police organizations were named but in all of these countries there were efforts made to know what was going on mm-hmm. but where they failed was they could not enforce their will either internally or externally I if I go through those countries uh, let's, let's take uh, the Shah I think when the Western allies started shifting away from the Shah he could not control their interest in the country so an exile in Paris comes back to Iran and he's overthrown you look at Batista when Castro was endorsed by the United States government in the 50s for a period of time he was a hero Batista fell if you look at Ceausescu in Romania I believe Chautrescu irritated people, when I say people, I'm speaking of governments now, on both sides of the Iron Curtain. I think when we look at the Serbs, I think they, again, could not control the externalities. Now, if we look at major powers like our own country, that's a hint that we need to control our externalities. We do not need to be at the whim of some foreign power, either financially militarily or in terms of our history or heritage. We should be as as fine as any country that would come along in terms of the political process we propose and and live by. But when we start seeing those things changing, if we start seeing a, a weakening in our military posture, if we start seeing a weakening in our ability to control our own financial affairs, when we start seeing a weakening in our heritage and our past where it's become ridiculed, boy, I think you're starting to lay track for the limitations of a civil authority called our country, <laughs> the United States of America. And if we take hints from these other places uh, that I just mentioned, or we look at other countries, and there have been other great powers before, I mean you can go all the way back to Rome or you can talk about things as recent as Britain and France and Italy um, or Germany and Japan. We could learn a lot from this.
0: Mm-hmm. Well it was my privilege to know uh a remarkably humble and a truly great man, Elgin grossclose His name is perhaps forgotten by most people today, although he wrote a few very remarkable novels, but basically he was an economist, wrote two exceptionally fine books on money. After World War One. Elgin grossclose was sent to Iran to help uh, set up the old Shah's regime, which he did. After World War II, he went there once again to help the young Shah. And it led to the dramatic modernization of the country, remarkable progress, but The Shah failed to follow Groskos' advice at one point. He said, if you do not put your country on a hard money basis, on the gold standard, you will sooner or later have an inflation that will wipe you out and send you packing. No account of the Shah's departure mentions that fact. The people were well off under the Shah, better than they could ever have imagined. They were, as compared to other uh, Islamic states, more prosperous, had a bit more freedom, even though it was a tightly controlled situation. But, when inflation set in, suddenly all these people found that everything they had was at risk. Because money was losing its value. And that's what destroyed the Shah. And it's going to destroy other countries as well, including ours, because money is becoming worth less and less. I can recall that, uh, I've mentioned this fact before, one time in the 30s, thousands upon thousands were applying from all over the country to teach in Los Angeles because the teachers were paid $150 a month. That was big money. But today nobody can live on 150 And the result of inflation is that people are in trouble now. Economically in trouble. Increasingly, as, uh, I hear from people across country, even in very well-to-do upper middle class neighborhoods, it is now necessary for both husband and wife to work. And even then, they are having trouble making ends meet. Now, we don't feel it as much here because we're in a mountain area, a low-cost area, and uh, in the backwashes, so to speak, of the rise in prices. But inflation is wiping out more and more people in the United States. The number of people today who are in a position of being unable to meet the payments on their houses is increasing. And what the banks are doing is to tell the people, uh, if you can make any kind of payment, we will carry you. We cannot uh, repossess all the homes of people who are in trouble, but we're ready to carry you if you'll make some kind of token payment regularly. So, it was inflation that wiped him out. Now, it is the modern state that creates inflation. You cannot inflate silver and gold. There's no way you can inflate it. If that's your only currency, it holds its value. But if it's paper then you can increase the money supply via the printing presses. And the result is that uh, people are faced with inflation. Now, up to a point, people welcome it. I recall in the 50s, this young veteran was very pleased. He was having trouble meeting uh, payments on his house. But when inflation sent his salary from 400 to 650, he thought inflation was great. He defended it. He championed it. And he said, what we need is more inflation. Well, what it has done is to wipe people out. And in the real estate boom of the 80s, people were going out and buying houses. Having payments to make of fifteen hundred, two thousand, up to three thousand, and now they can't make it. So the wives are going to work. And it's creating problems because in many instances the wives now are better able to get and hold a job than the men, precisely because there is a differential in pay. The man has seniority in his work, he's easily expendable. But the women are coming in at the bottom level and they can do as much work.
1: This should be pointed out to the feminists that if they do achieve equality in pay, they will lose job security.
0: Yes. It was in 72 that inflation began to push women into the marketplace. And now in the 90s, they are out there with a vengeance because they have to keep working or go to work to preserve the family's home and property.
1: Could we talk about for a minute, there, there has to be a, a seminal influence that drives the decay of all governments. Uh, to the point where they they can no longer maintain themselves, you've discussed inflation and the the symptoms of inflation the what inflation inflicts on the population, uh, but the fact that there have been so many governments through history, thousands, tens of thousands of them since the beginning of of history, uh, they all follow the same track, so there has to be some common denominator, some lesson to be learned after all of this human experience and nobody's getting it.
0: They don't want to learn and they think they can beat it. Uh, Dorothy has often remarked about the incredible fact that France destroyed itself economically with the South Sea bubble. Mm -hmm. And almost at once the... Um. Uh, yes, the Mississippi uh, bubble. And then almost at once the South Sea bubble wiped out the British economy. They didn't learn from the French experience because they decided they were smarter than Frenchmen. And therefore, they could make it work. And the results were devastating for both. There's an interesting fact that John Lofton very recently called to my attention in the primaries there was a great deal of talk about uh, protectionism versus free trade well I think a case could be made for the fact that both have worked the key is not the device but the productivity of the people in this country however the point that Lofton made that w- was rather startling, but once you saw it, you realized, yes, that's the way it was. Up until World War One, our federal government lived primarily on tariff money. And we did very well with it. We prospered. Now we're living and we're prospering As a country, economically, off of the income tax. (laughs) So we've shifted the burden of taxes from the foreigner who wants to sell to us to the American citizen. Maybe that's a good thing, maybe it isn't. I don't particularly like it. But it has been destructive to the American citizen
2: you know you mentioned uh, paul earlier was talking about what what causes this collapse of of confidence that co- that leads to the collapse of a government we've talked about inflation you mentioned the uh, mississippi bubble the south sea bubble which is is the same pattern of all speculative bubbles and and uh, that go bust and, and that is when the people lose confidence in a system uh, just as if they lose confidence in a get-rich s- scheme, once the public perception is such that this isn't going to fly, it all falls apart. When the people lose confidence in a government or they think they can disobey a government and get away with it. And that was one of the primary, as I understand it, one of the primary rationales behind uh, uh, removing the Prohibition Amendment because it was so widely disobeyed. Yep. and that it was thought that that was not, not a healthy thing for people if they thought they could get away with v- violating the law
1: observe a couple of things one of them is that the people in this country have fallen silent You know, the media does all of the talking tells the people what to think but the people have fallen silent and the second thing is that people aren't voting so the collapse is in progress the collapse of confidence is in progress Mm-hmm. It simply hasn't run its course, but it's it's on that it's on a downhill run.
2: And people are disappointed because they've been promised so much, and so many people believed it for so long, and now they're finding that the promises aren't going to pan out, that the government can't really do this and they can't really do that, and all they've done is bankrupt the American citizen and the American economy. So a change can happen when the change comes to the people, and you mm-hmm. often can't see that coming. Why does a, a, a bull market turn bear all of a sudden? It's After it happens, you can, you can speculate about the causes, but it's, it's a public perception that, that things are turning around.
1: But, you know, some of the breaks that we've seen, uh, relatively recently is the Los Angeles Police Department running in the face of civil disorder, abandoning the streets to the mob. I mean, when have, when have we seen that previously in our lifetimes? Uh, the Supreme Court, uh, handing down a decision that uh, police departments are not obligated to protect you whether you pay for it or not they're not obligated to protect you I mean these are all signals that you have to assume that we're getting to the end of this cycle of this government I, I think
3: on this I categorize the thing that Mark said and the thing that you said Doug is within this category of what I call ability to enforce And I think one of the things that I think is a real bellwether for civil governments has to do when people recognize an exchange of value is disproportionate. We can't tell whether a battleship costs the right amount. We get upset when we hear about hammers costing so much. But when people start seeing a disproportionate value exchanged, for instance, if you pay for your government and your roads are still bad, that's, that's subtle, but it starts to contribute. But if you look at in Germany in the 20s, when people had to carry wheelbarrows of currency, to buy loaves of bread, then they see a disproportionate value in the exchange. Mm-hmm. And when that happens and it's widespread, now you can have erratic movement where sometimes you say, gee, why am I paying 18% like under Carter for, you know, when you had to pay 18% for home mortgages and then it went down and everyone said, oh, it's okay now. Mm-hmm. But when you start seeing disproportionate exchange values and they don't seem to be Coming to an end, where they seem to be lasting for a disproportionate amount of time. That, I think, is when the civil government, the, the state, starts to cave in on itself.
1: Well, this is why the uh, federal government created the Federal Reserve System. Remember, uh, Volcker or Alan Greenspan when the, uh, when the savings and loan, uh, Collapse came along and he just had to make one statement, we will provide liquidity. And that's all people wanted to hear. They wanted to be told a fairy story and they got it. And everybody went back to sleep. But it was a device, pure and simple. More dollars chasing fewer goods and services the master plan for inflation. The government lies routinely about inflation. They tell the people every night on the 6 o'clock news latest figures and government sources say that inflation is 2 to 3 percent when the real rate of inflation is 13 to 14 percent because they cook the books. They subtract things that we commonly have to pay for in our daily lives from the cost of living that uh, uh, arrives at the rate of inflation. So the government lies routinely; it misrepresents routinely. So it, these are additional indications that the government knows. The government knows. The government knows. Yes. You know, they know that they're getting toward the end of the cycle, and they come up with all of these devices, these little sham devices and lies and. And so forth to try to fool the people into thinking that everything's all right. So when we get to the point you're talking about, the wheelbarrow full of money, I, uh, that's uh, when the cat will be out of the bag. <laughs> <laughs>
0: There's another aspect here that I think should be brought out. Across the world, there are no limits on the civil governments around the world. We had limits originally, but we have abolished them, especially since World War I, in that we have progressively introduced the doctrine of federal sovereignty into our legal system. The Constitution does not use the word because Washington, for one, and others as well were totally opposed to it. John Quincy Adams cried out eloquently on the 50th anniversary of the Constitution against the use of the word because, as he rightly said, the term belongs only to God. He alone is sovereign or Lord. Well, the simple fact is the claim to sovereignty is crucial. No law can bind a sovereign. You cannot pass laws telling God what to do. Because if he is God, he's going to overrule them. He is the lawmaker. And if the state is sovereign, if Washington, D.C., the federal government is sovereign, no law on any level can ever control them. Congress has passed a couple of restrictions on uh, deficit spending, but they're worthless because Congress has no power to chain a sovereign power, the federal government. So until we get back to a Christian premise, namely that God alone is Lord or Sovereign, we're going to have an uncontrollable federal government. We have an uncontrollable British government, an uncontrollable French, German, Italian, Spanish, you name it. The governments of the world all claim sovereignty. Now if the UN is declared to be the sovereign and we're legally moving towards that, it's going to make the claim all the more evil. Yes. Well, thank you all for listening. Our time is up. God bless you.